0: Hey, everyone. It is the end of 2023, and we have our best shows of the year. They're coming right up to help you celebrate these last days of 2023. And from all of us here at the Newstack, have a happy holidays. You're listening to the NewStack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to thenewstack.io. All right, now on with the show. Hey, everyone.
1: I am so excited for our guest today, Matt Welsh, CEO and co-founder of Fixie.ai. We came across Matt and it related to a story that he wrote in the communications of the ACM about the end of programming. I also want to state that we've learned a little bit about Matt in our conversations and apparently... He uh, was the professor that Mark Zuckerberg had at Harvard in that scene from the social network that we know. And who was the actor that played you? I think it was Brian Palermo. Brian Palermo. Right. That's amazing. So, but they use your, but Brian Palermo played you and then they use your PowerPoint slide.
2: They used my actual PowerPoint slides. And yeah, it was a weird, weird situation. They called me up and said, can we get some materials to help out with making this movie more realistic? Because it's an Aaron Sorkin film. He likes everything to be very realistic. I was like, sure. So I sent him some PowerPoint slides that I was using in my lecture at Harvard. And I said, well, how much are you going to pay me for this? And they said, oh, about <laughs> so $200. I got $200 and no no uh, credit in the movie, but my slides are in the, in the movie.
1: <laughs> well, great. Well, I want to turn to a little bit more about you i'd love to learn about the work you are doing now at fixie.ai and then we can discuss the article and get into the depths of the changes we're seeing now with uh, ai and its emergence in my view on the web so yeah let me let i would love to just hear about what you're doing and what fixie.ai
2: is about yeah that's great yeah so we started fixie about six months ago now. And the premise here was that these large language models like GPT-3, they can actually act as general purpose problem solvers. If you give a model like GPT-3 a detailed problem to solve, it can break it down into steps and execute those steps one by one and call out to external systems and APIs and basically take action if you frame the problem the right way for the model, right? This is super exciting. And, you know, people that have played with ChatGPT are probably, they can see this happening, right? You can give it a a, a job to do and it, it, it can kind of figure out how to break it into steps and execute that one by one. So what we're doing at Fixie is saying to ourselves, okay, let's take that as a new computational substrate the model is the virtual machine and you program it in english and then you need to give that model access to external software systems right you need to get it to call out to apis like github or jira or salesforce or you might want it to access a database or you might want to have it access your you know internal uh, bi dashboard tool interesting okay And so FIXI is effectively building a platform to let companies develop applications on top of these language models that can be extended with any kind of capability.
1: Hmm. So you can build AI into your existing applications or into your existing infrastructure, for example, your software infrastructure? Yeah, like your,
2: your, your, like, uh, yes, your, like workflows, your tools, your products, And just sort of embed these large language model capabilities into those applications. But, you know, not just the language model by itself, but imbued with that, you know, external data access and API access ability. And that ends up being like a super powerful way of building things. So you could say, for example, I want to fetch data from, you know, these three different sources and break it down in the following way and make some graphs and turn that into a dashboard. You can say all of that in English and Fixie will take that and break it into pieces and steps and call out to different language models and call out to those external systems and pull all of that together. So it's Think of it a little bit like no code or low code programming, but using language at the core.
1: This work must have influenced your article that you wrote on this topic of title, The End of Programming. It must have had some impact. Maybe you could tell us about the article, the thesis that you present.
2: Yeah. Well, the thesis in the article, and, and these were kind of like ideas that were floating around in my head as I was working on building Fixie. It was It was this idea that, wait a minute, you know, the field of computer science has always been about humans taking a problem and turning it into instructions for a machine right? That's the whole field. That's the definition of computer science is the art or the science of taking problems and mapping them onto what machines can do. And I started recognizing that with these models getting larger and larger and more capable, and you start to use the model as not just a thing that's completing text, but as a thing that is actually doing the computation. So now your, your, your computational core is no longer a, a you know an x eighty six CPU running you know machine instructions. It's it's an AI model that is solving problems and and you know operating and and working in 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 the ways that like a human might in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, ways a human might a lot of ways. And yeah, there's right? lots
2: of conversations we could have about that,
1: right? Like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was reading something just last night about you should be nice in some respects to Bing. Like, don't <laughs> you shouldn't be trying to intimidate yeah. Bing. You, you shouldn't be trying to intimidate ChatGPT Ch- Ch- because that treats that intimidation as an output, right? Yes, right. And if and if like, and we don't really know what that output will lead to, right? We don't know if like ah uh, yes. You know, yeah. I mean, we don't know if like that output will mean that this model m- might like to f- like say, well, I also know human behavior from my other kind of data that I have. And I'm going to say something
2: really nasty right, back. Right? right. Right. You know,
1: yeah, and you're reinforcing not- it in the
2: wrong ways, I think. It yeah. Yeah. is a, that's good, a good way of way, thinking about it. Yeah. I was it. reading, you know, because I read that, uh, you know, that the, the New York Times piece that came out, I think, yesterday about. You know how how Bing and and the the ChatGPT that got embedded into Bing is had had this tendency to kind of go off the rails and you know started professing its love for the user and so forth and in reading that it, it struck me and and there was sort of like an emotional chord that hit me here is that I said you know we're treating this thing this machine this model as just a just a machine, just this mechanical yeah. thing. It's a bunch of floats sitting in a pile of GPU somewhere, but it's behaving in ways that are, you know, remarkably like a person. Yeah. And, you know, I, there's some ethical issues in there that need to be unpacked. I, maybe we need people for the ethical treatment of AI or something, because it just feels as though we're going to get to a place where the lines become so blurred between the way we treat machines and the way we treat people. And, you know, we already treat people like crap on the internet, especially, Uh, you know, how should we be thinking about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's turn to computer science because it's a big part of your article. And, you know, part of the article is like about how in, in the past computer science was so essential, right? We needed programming languages. Right to interpret the machine information. And it's been incredibly valuable. I, w- I have kind of like a question here, and I think there's a little bit of a paradox to what I'm trying to kind of just figure out myself. On the one hand, I think you could argue, and I think you do, how CS could become irrelevant, right? But inversely, how does the history and development of computer science relate to the trajectory of AI and its optimization? There seems to be this kind of like dual kind of Story here,
2: yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and and you know, it's it's you know, strikes me as a little bit not unlike the relationship to electrical engineering and computer science today, right? In the in the earlier days of computer science as a field, I mean, typically academic CS grew out of either electrical engineering disciplines or mathematics disciplines, and. It's an interesting kind of dichotomy there in terms of what CS departments look like based on which of those they grew out of. But the the core thesis that I have is when you get to a place where the models are solving problems, you don't need to write programs anymore. And so the art of programming, that idea that I need to learn how to express myself in a machine language, even if it's a Python or Ruby or whatever, it ends up starting to become a lot less important. And one might imagine that being something not unlike, you know, the slide rule (laughs) that, you know, this is a tool that every engineer needed to know how to use. And over time, it feels to me as though, you know, like maybe that art of programming is less and less relevant over time if the AIs are doing more and more of that for us. But that doesn't mean that computer science as a discipline completely fades away. I just think it ends up transforming, And in particular, you know, EE is still a very huge field. It's not like we've lost the need to have electrical engineers just because people are now writing software that sits on top of that. Likewise, I have a feeling that computer science as a discipline becomes the sort of more technical underpinnings of all of this stuff. But most people that are going to be "Quote unquote," programming computers will not be writing Java or Python. They're going to be instructing a machine in English. Okay, and there's I some think, exciting yeah. opportunity there. I, I don't. I don't think this is yeah. altogether a bad thing. Uh, yeah, no, I don't
1: either. The, the thing I've been thinking about when I'm reading your article, and I want to ask you about, it is like the I/O, right? You know, the input and the output, right? That's kind of like a, fu- a fundamental aspect of computer programming, right? And the data that you're kind of ingesting through the ingress, right, is tremendous in a language learning model, right? Right. And, but then on what we've seen, I think, with ChatGPT is also then the output is, is critical too, because, you know, there have been multiple latency issues with ChatGPT and such, right? Right, right. Um, right. And so I'm curious about that. Like, how, you know, I think then of like how do you think about load balancing, right? And thinking of kind of all those other aspects of enterprise infrastructure.
2: I think, yeah, no, certainly the the models are are huge and they're they're very very uh, resource intensive. They require a lot of data. They require months and months and months of training. And so, looking at where we are today with this state of technology, I think many people could be forgiven for feeling as though possibly, well, this is this is just too expensive, it's too big, it's too cumbersome. This is not going to end up being a a revolution in the way we use computing. The way I view it is, you know, very much taking a historical perspective of, you know, the first computers filled rooms, (laughs) right, the ENIAC and so forth. And then they got progressively smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, whatever computer is in my AirPods now is no doubt far more powerful than any of those. So I do think that the history has taught us anything is that the costs are going to come down, the size is going to come down, the expense is going to come down. So what happens in a world where the next generation of these models is running on hardware, highly specialized for the model, it can run on a phone or something. And it's cheap. It's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Just like computing is today. I think that's the world we have to be prepared for it. We're not, you know, we're certainly just starting now to get to grips with this. One of my analogies here is one of the reasons that I think everyone's freaking out about ChatGPT is that there has never been an AI system that like anybody could pull up in a web browser and just start talking to before. And the ChatGPT is so far ahead of anything that came before It's a little like if, you know, computer graphics suddenly went one day, like on one day they went from like Pong to Red Dead Redemption 2, (laughs) like all of a sudden you just had this massive gap and people's heads would explode, right? And so I think that's what's happening with this is our heads are exploding because we didn't even see this coming.
1: Yeah, it's a funny thing. I've thought about that a lot, like over the past few weeks, especially and I think of a waterfall, no pun intended, you know, waterfall approaches to building software, but it's like the waterfall suddenly right there, you know, it's like, right. it's cascading. I'm curious about how do you think this ha- has an effect on programming languages and a tremendous popularity of programming languages like Rust. And, and so I am just very curious about how you think of programming languages. And it sounds like what you're saying is like, they're not going to go away but they they're, they're going to be less relevant. I'm just curious on what you right. th- what your thoughts are right now about that. Well,
2: well I have a kind of spicy take on this that's probably a little controversial. So if you think about, you know, maybe the last what 40 or 50 years of programming language design and research, you know, the the goal of that has largely been to make writing programs easier. And you rewind the clock back to, you know, 1957 Fortran or something, Those programs are pretty complex and hard to read. You look at a modern program and say Rust, guess what? It's the same. It's just as hard to read and understand. It's still very, very complex. So we've been at this for 50 years. And, you know, sure, there's a lot of people who say, all right, well, maybe we should all be doing functional programming, or maybe we should all be doing, you know, whatever, some other kind of programming. But, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem likely to me that any amount of work on improving type systems or syntax or any of that debugging, whatever, is going to suddenly crack that nut and just make programming suddenly easy. (laughs) Like We've been at it for a while. It's not, it's not improving. So this is where I think there's going to have to be a kind of a quantum shift to not programming anymore as the way to talk to computers and instruct them. I think it's going to have to be natural language. And it's going to have to be, you know, and this, these new models, people talked about natural language programming for decades. It's only now that we actually have the tech. And, you know, part of my thinking on that is think about how many years it takes to become a seasoned software programmer and people who have been at it for a while are commanding unbelievable salaries from, you know, their employers and all of these things. Well, if, computing becomes, let's say, democratized because now you don't need to be this like wizard in a tower who understands how to write Rust code to instruct a machine. That's going to completely change that dynamic. Anyone will be able to do it. And I actually think that's a really good thing. You know, there's all kinds of people in the world and places in the world that could benefit from computing that simply do not have access to it because the skill level, the skill set required is just way too high.
1: So what do you see as the differentiator then for people who are programming or even kind of in IT infrastructure and are needing to know code? What is that differentiator that you'll see that will change the dynamic for those people?
2: I think ultimately it goes away. You know, My honest belief is that the field, the the profession of being a programmer, of being a you know an IT you know someone someone who's building code, at least for writing code. I mean, sh- you you need IT, no doubt, for plugging things together and managing physical infrastructure, but. For the actual writing of software, I tend to think that profession becomes a lot less differentiated. And you know what does that mean? It mean it, it no longer becomes a highly skilled profession because it becomes something anybody can do. And we saw some of the inklings of this as well with Stable Diffusion in Dali effectively automating artists. <laughs> that that uh, that's scary to that whole industry. Uh, it should be scary to that whole industry. I think in the case of art an argument can really be made for art being created by humans is meaningful and, and touches us deeply as a society that, that that's different from the more utilitarian nature of, you know, software development, which is just in most cases intended to be something that shouldn't matter whether a human does it or a robot does it.
0: Yeah. I think
1: one of the, you know, aspects to all this is how we see ourselves as humans and how we view critical thinking. And and that's really, I think, what people are most worried about when they say, is it going to take my job? It's going to do this. Right. Because I think one thing we find is that it's easier to do things when you're writing an email and it completes a sentence for you, right? You're using a service like Grammarly and it's helping you yep. kind of just Get, get things just right yep I'm curious again you know, on that aspect of critical thinking that's kind of where my curiosity goes like what about that like
2: yeah I think that's a good point you know last night I was giving a, a talk on this topic and a, a colleague of mine um, Victor Ball at Microsoft Research made an excellent point here that that I hadn't considered before which is okay so the AIs might be able to generate all the code for us. However, is the AI going to invent a new algorithm? Is it going to come up with a new concept? Today, the answer might be no. And and I don't know if that is actually going to be possible in the future. So there's an interesting kind of, I think, human-machine symbiosis that we need to develop where we enable people to continue putting in the creative energies into inventing the new solutions to problems because I think they will be best equipped to do so but the mechanics of taking those ideas and transforming them into working software systems. I think that starts to be more and more automated over time. You know, it strikes me as not unlike the invention of the uh, steam engine or the, the automobile or the printing press, we're, we're getting into a place where we've been doing things in a very manual, labor intensive, expensive way for the entirety of this field. And, it's going to have a just a massive transformational effect on how we do it.
1: I'm curious about where you were 18 months ago and how you were thinking about things and how your current perspective is different than it was 18 months
2: ago because 18 yeah. months ago we wouldn't have envisioned this kind of That's right. Yeah, and I was super yeah. skeptical like when I when I first saw GPT-3 and uh co-pilot and um, even Chat GPT, I said, yeah, that's cute. you know, and, and the original GPT3, you know playground, I couldn't figure out what to do with it. It was kind of like, okay, you can write a children's story about a kangaroo or something like, okay, that's cute. It wasn't until we started trying to interface these models with other software systems that the power became apparent. And I think this idea of the language model being able to effectively execute programs, and perform reasoning, this was actually empirically discovered. People didn't know the language models could do this. There was research papers. They said, hey, if you prompt the model in the right way, it will solve problems. And people were surprised that wasn't intended in the training of these models. So I think the shift, the big shift really started to come around as we saw the opportunity and and like actually started using it in a serious way that the parlor tricks that people were using these models for were not compelling. And it was easy to, I think it was, I dismissed and many people did dismiss, I think these models as no more than that, um, until we started like getting beneath the surface of what they could do and then ChatGPT, I think, really opened up the aperture a lot and made that made that something that everyone now is is seeing that. And and it's yeah, it's kind of scary. It's exciting, <laughs> right?
1: It uh, makes me think of like how will the compute get cheaper? How will that scenario unfold? And we we write about edge architectures, for instance, and yeah, you know, and how they're getting adopted. And we, we write about WebAssembly and how that might be better suited for. Edge architectures. What are your thoughts on on how it's going to get cheaper? How it is gonna, how that compute is going to be more available?
2: Yeah, the thing that the thing that we've you know the, the the whole industry here is largely built on top of conventional GPU architectures, and and those are expensive and they're very power hungry and 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 they they work well, but they are not particularly efficient at executing these kinds of models. I think that the challenge is that the model architectures that people are experimenting with are evolving rapidly. And so it's useful to have general purpose hardware that you can run them on to enable that kind of innovation, that pace of innovation. If you constrain the ability of the machine too much, then you you lose that opportunity to branch out beyond what that hardware. However, I think as we gain more clarity about what the fundamental aspects of the model architecture need to be to support a wide range of use cases, then the opportunity comes back in to specialize the hardware tremendously to get it to a point where the cost and the power consumption and the performance are so much better than they are on a general purpose GPU or CPU. So a colleague of mine is actually in the process of starting a company where they're looking at building ASICs that are designed specifically for uh, running these models and they're finding that, you know, they can get, you know, hundreds of times better performance, you know, one of these big servers with, you know, eight GPUs in it can get replaced by like a little chip. And so that's likely to be the next wave of this stuff. And once that happens, two things really happens. Like we're already spending ungodly amounts of money on these large models. If the price comes down by a couple of orders of magnitude, two things happen. First of all, they become cheaper for the current size model, but then the models themselves can grow in scope and complexity and size for the same footprint of hardware. And that's going to be, you know, mind blowing in terms of what that, what that manages.
1: Maybe you could then talk about how to be mind blowing in the context of the cost and the evolving definition of an intelligent machine.
2: I think that this is, this is all the, like, there's been a lot of discussion on AGI and what does that really mean and you know is is it meaningful to have a, a an intelligent system that's sort of locked up inside of a computer as opposed to something that can interact with and see the world and operate as though we do as humans? I don't know where that's going to go, right? I think that one thing we should maybe be really thoughtful about, possibly scared of is this idea that a machine intelligence is not limited to you know, the physical frame of a, a single human being that, you know, has to sit in a particular room at a particular time with a keyboard and a mouse, right? It could potentially connect to everything that's already on the internet and interact with it. It can be effectively everywhere all at once, right? If not in virtual, if not in physical space in, in you know, cyberspace. And so it's going to be less constrained than humans in so many different dimensions and so I'm not, you know, this is this ends up being a place that, you know, as the capacity of these models expands over time, you know, we're going to have to have a very serious conversation as a society about what we want these models connecting to and, and how we want to interact with them. And coming back to your point about the ethics, I think that the ethics play a big part of that too.
1: Yeah, last night I also saw something about someone put in a prompt for, you know, can you write a dystopian novel based on ChatGPT? Right, and it came out with like the all-powerful machine, basically at the very end. Correct.
2: I mean, it's science fiction, but I don't think it's science fiction for very long. I think we're we're getting to a place where the abilities of the models and the abilities of the AI systems will start to have this this uh, super intelligent ability at some point in our lifetimes. I think, and because it's going so fast, and so we're not ready you know, nobody's ready.
1: (laughs) So my last question then is in the article, you talk about, you know, you use the uh, meteor as a metaphor. What is your meaning of
2: the metaphor in this case? Yeah. Thinking about, you know, the KT event that caused the, you know, extinction of the dinosaurs, hopefully not that traumatic, (laughs) but certainly equally as transformational to society. If you imagine that, There is a, just around the corner, and just around the corner being, say, three to five years from now, there's going to be an AI model that can effectively write any program in any language for any machine, given an English description of that. Uh, You go do the math. uh, If you, uh, you know, think about how much money it costs today to use GPT-3 to generate the same amount of code as a human, you do the math, it turns out to be about 12 cents, 12 cents a day human developers cost a lot more than 12 cents a day. (laughs) And this next model, this is even GPT-3, the next model will be 10,000 times more efficient than that. So that's the meteor, right? The meteor, as it, you know, strikes the field of computing and software development and computer science, it's going to radically change what the field looks like. And I think it will be making that change in the next, say, five to 10 years. So, how do we get ready for that? I mean, can we, there may be nothing we can do. The dinosaurs couldn't stop the meteor any better than we could. Uh, but I do think that, you know, we should accept that as almost an inevitability, I think. And then, and then craft our thinking and our dialogue and our, our plans around that eventuality as opposed to treating it though as though it's, it's far, it's a ways really far off. It's not likely to happen. I think that there will be uh, uh, just a generational shift here. And it's exciting. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good I, thing yeah. if you imagine how it expands access to computing to everyone.
0: Well, I think also
1: like one of the things that's I think for people who are thinking about this a lot, there there's some truth in that we now have multiple personalities, actually. We have our physical one and then we have our personalities in different mediums, be it in yep. podcasting here or they'll be online or you know, on a social network, on Twitter, wherever else you can think about it. And that's kind of where my thinking goes, like, what will be that, what will be that extra being that will, that will start to, that will start to emerge, you know, from us and that spirit of us, right? That's what's interesting to me. And like then, but, 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 but what will happen in the next 35 years will be critical because we've started to really drift away from what is the public good, right? We don't really have a sense of the public good anymore. At least here in the, at least here in U.S. in the United States, right? We don't have a public good thinking really about natural resources anymore. Right. We don't have really a public good thinking about education anymore. Healthcare. Healthcare. And so without these thinking about the public good, my question is, how can we think about that extra being, which is to me just kind of a, a reflection on we just need to then observe and prepare for ourselves how, how this is you know, going to affect each one of us, it's, which is very isolating, unfortunately.
2: I, I think it's true. But, you know, this is, this is again, it's, it's going to be something like the Industrial Revolution and the kind of impact it had on, had on society what uh, yeah. was profound, and I, I think that we as a society are, are going to have to grapple with this. We are grappling with it today. It's certainly moving faster than anyone expected. And I think that's, you know, it's a huge opportunity. It's a huge set of challenges. I mean, I tend to be very excited about that, but I think some of it comes yeah. from a place of let's skate to where the puck is going to be because yeah. I, don't, I don't think things are going to be done the old fashioned way for much longer.
1: Yeah. That sense of being is what really makes me feel better. Like what is that new sense mm-hmm. of being going to be? Well, thank you so much for your time, Matt. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, so did I. It's
0: great. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community, and we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube. Search for The New Stack and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us and see you soon.